0: I-O-9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And
1: here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
2: Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and The Living Dead. I'm um, also the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine. The entire first year of Lightspeed Magazine will be available in an anthology, which comes out in November, called Lightspeed Year One.
1: And I'm David Curley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Skull Face City, about an intelligent zombie who organizes hordes of mindless zombies into an unstoppable army The story appeared in John's anthology, The Living Dead 2, which Simon Pegg calls a must for any self-respecting zombie completist. And speaking of Simon Pegg, he's our guest today. He co-wrote and starred in the movies Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Paul, and has also appeared in Star Trek 2009 and Mission Impossible 3. And he just released his first book, a memoir called Nerd Do Well, which focuses on the childhood passions that made him into the nerd celebrity he is today.
2: All right, well, let's get to our interview.
1: All right, so we're here with Simon Pegg. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Okay, so uh, you know the inside cover of Nerd Do Well features doodles that you did as a kid and includes references to Velvet Thunder and Planet Peg*. Are there any stories behind any of those doodles?
0: Velvet Thunder was weirdly a, a, an idea that Nick Frost and me came up with very early on in our relationship. It might have been our first collaborative effort because it dates back to about 1994 or 5 we were thinking of making a film, but only on video, like what would now these days be like a YouTube clip about two cops. One of them was called someone like Dave Velvet and Big Danny Thunder or something. And uh together they were Velvet Thunder. And I think the first adventure that we were kind of thinking was actually a zombie outbreak, which is interesting considering the idea in some respects is like a combination of Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. It's like we, we dissected the, our first ever idea and then turned it into two other movies with Edgar Wright. But, but uh, that was Velvet Thunder. Planet Peg, uh, I think, was probably just me on the phone to somebody and uh, imagining a world that was entirely made of me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, so the book contains a fictional account of you as a super spy with a robot butler. Uh, why'd you decide to include those sections?
0: Uh, because I I started developing that character uh, on blogs and stuff and uh, with uh, my webmistress, Harmony, at uh, pegster.net. And, uh, I'd used it a couple of times, but I like—I really like the idea of writing this incredibly bombastic, sort of uh, self-involved, or hmm. uh, writing myself as this incredibly self-involved, bombastic superhero with a rubber Butler uh, in in the most sort of florid prose possible. Because it's just enormous fun to be bad on purpose. And um, hmm. w- with the book, it felt like an an interesting device to um, to kind of undermine the notion of writing a memoir, you know, because in a sense writing a memoir is an act of incredible self-indulgence, and I think that, you know, by by slipping those chapters of fiction in, I was kind of saying to the readership, yeah, I get it, I know this is as ridiculous as this story, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. It was a kind of like, don't worry, everything's okay, it hasn't all gone to my head kind of gesture. The fact is, the the, the memoir came up, it was suggested to me by a publisher who we I was in talks to write a book with, and... You know, it was not something I ever really set out to do. It wasn't. It wasn't my intention, and um, uh, the idea was kind of like uh, sold to me. And I I found an angle that I thought would make it worthwhile, which was to try and track the the ironies of being a, a fan and then becoming part of the world I was a fan of. And I felt there was a neat little circularity there that could be quite entertaining if you like that sort of thing.
1: And you mentioned that it's written in this sort of over-the-top pulp style. I was just wondering, did that voice come naturally, or did you have to sort of work at it to make it that sort of sort of over-the-top?
0: No, it comes naturally completely. That's my default sort of. That's how I want to write. You know, it it makes me laugh to to be so overly descriptive, and also but also undermine. You know, to to, to be quite dumb about it. I, I there's something amusing to me about dumb fiction and <laughs> and, and 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 people who wield literature like it's you know, a machine gun I had great fun in, in, you know, trying to come up with different ways of saying he said, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's always fun to try and vary that so much that you, there's never this repetition of the same, words on the same page. He seized, he mumbled, he communicated, he croaked, you know, it's all that kind of stuff, which I find enormous fun.
2: So have you, have you written much prose fiction, uh, other than that? And, uh, do you think you might write more in the future?
0: I'd like to write an entire novel of, uh, of, Simon Pegg superhero actually. I, I kind of um, or at least my perhaps a graphic novel, but I uh you know the 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 story, the memoir element I, I think I've uh I, I definitely exhausted, but uh you know, I wrote everything I wanted to write basically. There's nothing more I really want to share. But the the adventures of Simon Pegg at Canterbury could go on and on, you know, and, and uh uh it was just too much fun not to do. I would see those chapters as like a break. It would be like I'd written three chapters about my childhood. It's time to have a rest. i I write, you know, two thousand five hundred words about my reality in Marrakesh and my myself. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a. It, it, it was almost like um, a relief. And so, to, to write an entire book of that would surely be would surely be fun. It, it, it could. Have, I'll, maybe I'll write a, a, a fiction story and then slip in odd chapters about my my childhood to to, to, hmm. to offset it.
1: Uh, are the adventures of Simon Pegg? Is that being turned into a graphic novel or something? I think I might have heard that.
0: Uh, it has on uh, as an app. I think available for uh, for download. Um, that, that a kind of sort of truncated version of the story would put to really nicely, uh, sort of put into uh, a sort of comic book form, which is uh, which was kind of done as a as a way to promote the book in the UK. But um, it stands alone really as a nice little uh, exercise. I'd like to do that again. It was fun.
1: Okay, so you know, I thought that for a nerd memoir, this book seems fairly light on tales of you being bullied and ostracized. I mean, was your childhood relatively free of that, or did you just choose to focus on other things?
0: Yeah, no, I, you know, I had the same sort of altercations with other kids as most people do, and uh, I, put, I I do include a couple of them in there, mainly because they stick in the memory. You know, those things always always stay in your memory. But you no, know, I had a I had a pretty fairly happy childhood, and uh, you know, it, it wasn't going to be a, a a story of, well, anyway, I didn't really want to talk about stuff that upset me as a kid or or was particularly difficult to talk about. You know, it's the, it's the kind of stuff that you'd speak about in the pub with your mates, you know what I mean? It's stories that you'd tell, you'd relate, you know, that are that are easy to give away because they're just uh, experiences that people can relate to. I didn't really want to write a book. I don't think I could write a book. It's just about difficulty and pain. I, I don't think I've had enough. I do. I mean I don't want any more. I'm just saying I don't think I've had enough to do that in the first place. Uh
2: so you talk about how the movie E. T. was a big influence on you and it was obviously a big ev- it was obviously a big influence on your movie Paul. Um as a kid, was there ever a time when you believed that aliens were real and that the government was hiding the truth?
0: I had a big a long uh, there was a lot of uh, interest in me in the unexplained when I was young. I, I loved the uh the, the mysteries of the unexplained, the paranormal, you know, in search of with Leonard Nimoy and uh There was a magazine we had in the U.K. called The Unexplained Magazine, and uh, that all kind of fascinated me. And I I, I was definitely uh, uh, drawn in by it. I hadn't intellectualized it at any point at that time. You know, uh, as a child, you're much more susceptible to a fantasy. It's not until you get older that you realize, virtually everything you've been told as a child, is a lie. (laughs) um, But now, as an adult, I I believe thoroughly that there there's life on other planets. I just don't believe that they come visiting in sorts of shapes Spacecraft and, uh, and don't tell us, you know, that they come across eons of time just to finger us. It's, it's, it's like a waste of time. Um, and also, you know, when you start thinking, the, the human race is very egotistical, so we kind of assume that we are somehow important and worth visiting, or that, or that our tiny little flash of existence is significant enough in the universe to merit being visited. There might be billions of other civilizations that have existed at different times. For us, you know, we think of the world in terms of the way we perceive time which is just like milliseconds galactically so i'm sure there's i'm sure there's other life out there i just don't think they come visiting with
2: us is it true that you wrote your undergraduate thesis on a marxist overview of popular 1970s cinema and hegemonic discourses
0: uh i did i wrote I, the, the, the 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 piece is actually called uh, base and Super sucker which is a play on the phrase base and superstructure which is a marxist hegemony and consent in, in Star Wars and related works it was about, basically I was using Marxist modes of critical theory to address uh, Star Wars and the, the main thrust of it was that um, if you watch any kind of uh, television or theater or film that has certain kind of themes or, or opinions and you don't critically recognize them then you consent to them so very simply put, if you watch a racist comedian and you laugh, then you are a racist. And uh, there are various sort of like uh, preoccupations and concerns that flow through uh, popular cinema that reflect things that are going on in society. Certain ideas and certain fears and um, the thesis suggested that by uh, watching films like Star Wars, you are participating in those fears preoccupations.
1: I mean, what, what sort of aspects of Star Wars did you apply that to?
0: Um, well, for instance, at the, at the time, uh, you know, in the late 70s and to, to sort of mid-80s, we were in the probably the, the height of nuclear paranoia, and, um, and we were feeling um, that we could be bombed uh, at any second by the Russians. And um, a lot of films at the time reflect that, that sense of ill-ease, Uh, particularly uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, uh, Star Trek II, The Rock of Khan, all those films are riddled with bomb paranoia and also with justification for having bombs like that. So you have weapons like the Genesis Project in Star Trek, you have the Death Star, of the Force, you have the Ark of the Covenant, all of which are uh, fine in the hands of good people. You know, like the Ark is fine. If it's owned by the Americans, the Genesis Project is fine. If it's with the Federation, the Klingons, it's a weapon. uh The Death Stars a bad thing because bad people shouldn't have big things, big bombs. It was basically kind of saying that the ultimate power is okay as long as it's in the hand righteous. So, yes, we, we're allowed to wield nuclear bombs, but they aren't, kind of thing. We'll, it, and also, the Red of the Lost Ark is the most brilliant one in that it's also saying if you don't look at it, it can't hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> almost kind of like you know, really obvious. Kind of leave it to us, or leave it to the government. I know uh, well, Spielberg wasn't saying that, but these things just float to the surface. These preoccupations. That if, maybe if we don't look at it, it will go away. You mm-hmm. know, that's how Indy and Marion survive all those avenging angels at the end of prejudice. They just close their eyes, and it's kind of uh, it's indicative of how society was, was feeling at the time.
1: Uh, I mean, one thing that struck me reading the book is it seems like from the earliest years you were just sort of driven to perform, uh, whereas your friend Nick Frost, it seems like, really had to be prodded into performing. Could you just talk about the differences in your personalities and sort of what effect that has on the way that the two of you work together?
0: I think Nick was just he just was less bothered. You know, he kind of uh, – he, he didn't have any ambitions in that direction. I did. I was very ambitious. I decided what I'd do for a career when I was 15. And it was something I was already very interested in, and had been doing since I was three. And uh, you know, um, when I entered into the adult world from university, I was that was what I was going to do. Nick didn't. Nick grew up in Essex, and uh, you know, did donuts in car parks, and uh, went to a at for two years, and came back and worked in a restaurant, and didn't, didn't, wasn't really didn't really have any designs about his future, and. Uh, Hooked up with me because he thought, oh, that sounds like fun, and mm-hmm. I don't think he ever, ever thought for a second that it would, uh, you know, develop into a career. I, all I did was kind of—I'm not saying I'm responsible for his career at all. I, I, I helped him initially in his sort of first foray into stand-up, which he he didn't really enjoy because I, you know, he was thrown at the deep end of the London Company circuit, which for a novice is a hard place to cut your teeth. You know, it's a lot of rejection. Um, but he still remained the funniest person I'd ever met. And I, all my friends were comedians. So I gently nudged him towards perhaps being in space. He had, a, he had a great talent for sort of just performing among his friends. And I figured he could he could definitely uh, parlay that into a, an acting career. And so I introduced him to, uh, to acting through, by writing space and writing him a part. And after that, it was all him, because if he'd been bad at it, he would have disappeared straight away. But um, he didn't. And uh, as a result, you know, that's now a life and career. But I think it was more of an accidental happening upon it for him than it was for me. I was more proactive. He was more like, whatever.
2: <laughs> In Shaun of the Dead, uh, Sean's initially unperturbed about the prospect of killing his zombie stepdad. Uh, did you ever worry about how your actual stepdad would react to that?
0: Uh, no, not at all. I, I, I think he probably would have uh, known... That I don't want to kill him <laughs> uh, but that was uh, you know, it was it's a fiction so um, it wasn't me sort of saying anything to him uh, it was just an interesting thing I, I, I played at that the, 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 the politics of a step relationship and uh, it was a fairly kind of fruitful thing to draw from as a writer, you know, because there are certain dynamics in a step relationship which are dramatically interesting you know, you've got a sudden for a mother's attention and you have the strangeness of, of having a new father and you know there are things, there, there are faults and weaknesses on both sides and you know in in the film Sean is very sort of uh, he doesn't like his stepdad at all and they don't get on but in, in the final moments when his stepdad is going to die they they reconcile and their true feelings sort of like come out and I thought that was really interesting in, in terms of the the sort of stags element of two guys sort of Facing after, they 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 would behave like that towards each other, even though deep down they actually had respect and love for each other. And that kind of that wasn't really my relationship with my stepdad, but but I, I could see how that would uh, that could exist. And and uh, there were certainly elements of that in real life which I drew on. But no, he he, he knows I don't want to kill him. He's <laughs> just fine.
1: Uh, you know, when I watched *Shaun of the Dead*, I, I really thought that the movie had a completely happy ending. Um, but when I read your book, it makes you make it sound as if you see the ending in kind of a more sinister way. Could you could you talk about that issue of whether or not the movie has a happy ending?
0: I think the movie does have a happy ending. I like I like the fact. In fact, Edgar and I wrote that ending way before we'd written the main body of the film. We we love the idea of uh, you know the the, the the details of it are obviously quite tragic, but in actual fact, the status quo that is established is actually beneficial to everybody involved it's like uh you know the a certain character doesn't have to worry about having a job anymore or all he has to do is everything he always enjoyed doing and uh you know and Sean gets the girl so it was kind of uh uh idyllic you know it was like a utopia after everything that had happened but I also like the idea that maybe it's left ambiguous whether or not Liz is in on it and whether or not Sean is just still hanging on to his past in the way that had always held him back before. You know, the very sort of thrust of Sean of the Dead is that it's about a guy who has to let go in order to become a, a human, you know, he has to fight has a horde of zombies to, to become an adult human male. And uh and there is a there is a slight indication at the end that maybe he still can to the past. But that's just because that's more interesting than a completely just happy ending. It's a, like Hot Fuzz, there, there's, there's a seemingly, you know, the ending is quite idyllic. It's Danny and Angel and their, you know, their they're partners and friends. And, but they're, they're just a very faint fascist overtones <laughs> to the whole thing, <laughs> whereby you might just think, well, it's just one regime has replaced another regime. It's You know, yes, the NWA have been thwarted, but at the same time, what's replaced it? You know, it's two guys that will go and beat up two, some hippies.
2: Uh, so since Shaun of the Dead came out, there's been an absolute uh, avalanche of zombie stories. Uh, what do you make of this phenomenon, and what, do you, what, is, what have been some of your favorite recent examples of zombie books and movies?
0: Well, it's interesting. I think we, we kind of uh, were part of a movement that occurred in the uh, you know, the, the early part of this decade, in, in that uh, Danny Boyle's um, uh, 28 Days Later came out, which wasn't a zombie film, and, and, and nor has Danny ever claimed it was, but it's certainly true on certain themes from zombie films. You know, it was, it was, uh, it owed a debt to Romero and, but also John Wyndham and, uh, and then the, 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 the Dawn remake sort of came out around about the same time. And when we found out that was happening, cause it was, as far as we knew, when we went into production with Shaun the Dead, we were the only zombie film out there. We thought, wow, this is like, we're so ahead of the curve here. This is, we're literally resurrecting a dead genre and we're going to be the only ones. And then suddenly we weren't. And, uh, but we were quite pleased because Dawn of the Dead opted to sort of like, soup it all up a little bit and it's a great script and uh, um, I really like James Gunn the opening fifty minutes particularly is, is excellent but I think I think it really deserved to have its own identity I, I think it was a shame that it was called Dawn of the Dead not least because it could have stood on its own as, as a new film it, it, it didn't have to be related to Romero's Dawn of the Dead it, it was a shame that George has never been given the recognition it deserves for those films even though it's, he's very lauded among our circles you know He's never really made that much money from those films, when he's actually you know actually created an entire subgenre by himself. We were very very uh, slavishly sort of respectful to his vision of the zombie. In fact, we took his whole mythology that he invented—the sort of cannibalistic, you know, zombie that, that doesn't just eat brains; that eats the whole body—and and, you know, all, all his rules we adopted and and transplanted to North London, and our sort of hapless hero uh the subsequent iterations of the story of you know they've been related to like video games the, the fast zombie has kind of seemed to have come before which for me is uh isn't as interesting or as uh or as effective so i am a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to uh to my zombies but um i really enjoyed Having I mean, said that i really enjoyed Isaac Marion's book uh uh warm bodies which is a kind of a a sort of romance, really, with a zombie, but it, but, but, and has wrongly been called the sort of twilight with zombies, which it so is not. But it's a very, it's a very interesting evolution of the, uh, of the zombie myth, which kind of moves Romero's vision forward in a way that I thought I might not like, but I actually did. There's been some great zombie fiction, the two, uh, the two living dead books, very, very good. Um, I like The games have been good. I've enjoyed uh, Left 4 Dead is great, and those zombies run. I like the way that, that you kind of have your cake and eat it in that game. In that, if they don't see you, they're just sort of stumbling around, puking up, and leaning against walls, which I kind of like. Uh, But then they all start screaming and running. I think my problem with that is simply that without the motivation, without without any kind of you know, when they're just like stripped of will, they're very interesting because they're 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 quite tragic. But when they start running, they've got like they're in a bad mood and suddenly there's like motivations projected onto them and they just, they just come across as less interesting.
2: Okay. Uh, so, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Samuel Montgomery Blinn, uh, he's like our biggest fan, but, uh, he, he wanted to know if any of your Scotty quips from Star Trek were ad libbed.
0: Um, I couldn't possibly say, cause there was a writer's strike on at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, a couple just, I, I there were a few t- tiny Scottishisms that, uh, I bought in there because I have a Scottish family, so uh, there were a, a couple of things that um, in in the script were... At one point he called somebody Boyo, which is actually a Welsh uh, thing, mm-hmm. so I changed that because that would be more like Welsh, he would say, from Futurama. I think the, the phrase, my heat's buzzin', <laughs> I think that was mine. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay, so you, you know, you know, you and Dick Frost will be appearing as the Thompson twins in the upcoming Tintin movie. Uh, are you a fan of the yeah. Tint- Are you a fan of the Tintin comics? And if so, what are your What are some of your favorite moments from the books?
0: I was a fan growing up as a kid. Um, it was an animated series. They, they, there was an animated series of it that I used to watch when I was young. I can't say I read the comics particularly, but uh, I certainly knew who Tintin was. And uh, you know, as a more famous, as a pre-existing history in Europe, because. Um, you know he's more uh that's where he's from basically so i grew up knowing Tintin, but uh, it wasn't until i started working on it that i actually uh you know got in and read the, the crab with the golden claws and the Secret of the unicorn and what have you and uh but i thought i knew it already i, I knew the thompson's as well. everyone knows who the captain haddock is all these characters there, 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 there seems to be this odd sort of negativism about it in certain circles at the moment because people don't know it like and that's partly because brand recognition has become such an important thing in Hollywood. It's like, you know, marketing people are so desperate for people to have heard of the film before they've seen it. Films are being made of fucking Rock and Sock and Robots and uh, and you know, it's like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean alone is is essentially whatever you think of those films. They're based on a ride in a in a in a theme park because people have heard of the ride, and it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a very cynical way of getting people into the theatre. And I think. The thing with Tintin is that nobody knew Indiana Jones before Raiders. It's like no, nobody was worried that Raiders wouldn't do well because no one had. Indiana Jones was, was, God forbid, a new character was something we hadn't heard of before. So I think the, uh, that sort of the criticism about Tintin is, is just, is bizarre and boneheaded, I think. It's Steven Spielberg, for Christ's sake.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I actually grew up reading the Tintin books and I've read all of them, you know, many, many times. Um, so... yeah. Could you could you say like I don't know how much you can talk about it, but could you say what kind of like differences we can expect from the comics to the movie?
0: I think well it first of all first first and foremost, it's interesting that uh, Steven Spielberg uh, went after Tintin way back in the eighties after Raiders when um when he was told by European fans, you know, that Indiana Jones bore a certain similarity to Tintin in, in terms of being a globe trotting sort of adventurer and uh Steven was fascinated because uh, he hadn't heard of Tintin and so pursued it, and you know got involved with the uh, Herge estate. And, um, and the Herge estate have been thoroughly involved with the movie, so you know they've had uh, they've been there for approval and stuff. And I think it was very important to Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson, who was also a, a very much a Tintin fan, that the film be true to the original comics. And now. There are elements of the original comic which wouldn't translate to the modern day. They're faintly racist at times. But, uh, you know, that's not going to be in the film. But the the, the marvellous thing about this movie is that Stephen and Peter were right to wait until performance capture gave them the opportunity to essentially bring Hergé's vision to life in a sort of, I don't mean in, in a literal 3D sense, but in a, on screen in 3D. You, the, the film is extremely beautiful because it is it is the architecture of hergé but done in 3d and I, again i'm not talking about 3d the gimmick used to 10 people in to buy more expensive cinema scenes <laughs> i mean yeah. it's like you know it's it's to do it with actors would be to see people trying to look like cartoons whereas with performance capture you're able to make people look like cartoons and have them look thoroughly real and solid and so it's uh what, from what I've seen of it, and I haven't seen much, but it, it's it's a remarkable achievement. And I think, basically, the comic books are comic books and have had to be turned into films. You know, trans, trans, formats aren't transferable. People often assume that they are. People think dog oh, books can just be films, and films can just be video games, and video games can be films. And that's not true. You know, each one of those mediums it, it has a criteria of its own and doesn't necessarily translate to the other. So Tintin has been, you know, this film has been... That those stories have been uh, embellished obviously to fill the time that re- required it for, the, um, for a cinematic acting, but I think everything that's been done to do that it has been done with great care and attention to to the traditions of Hershey.
1: Well I mean like one, one thing that's interesting about the motion capture is that say you and Nick Frost can play twins um, in the movie. Um, yeah how, how does that work? <laughs> uh, how does that work? Um, like, if you know, if you have actors who are different sizes than their character is going to be in the movie. I mean, does that the, the computer just works all that out? Or
0: yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. When when Nick and I put on our motion capture suits on the monitor, we would look like the Thompson twins. You know, it was a kind of slightly crude sort of sixty uh, four bit rendering of what we would look like, maybe more majestic, but nevertheless we would be reduced to these two, you know, or maybe enhanced to these two uh, bumbling detectives. And um, it's amazing that when I watch the film, uh, the bits that I've seen of the film, um, I can see it's me and Nick, even though we both look exactly the same. I can tell who's who. And um, physically and and facially, it's apparent, you know, and that that was kind of weird. (laughs) It's, It's hard to explain.
2: Uh, so your role in the upcoming film uh, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol it involved uh, filming in Dubai. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I was training mainly when I was there. I think I only did about three or four days shooting in Dubai. I was I was in training. So, uh, but I got to see Tom hanging off the Burj Khalifa, and uh, that was amazing. And um, and I didn't really approach the. You weren't allowed to approach the window pane that had been taken out of the, the, the Burj Khalifa uh, any more than like twenty-five feet. You weren't. Every, everyone within twenty-five feet of the uh, of the hole inside the skyscraper had to wear a harness And but Tom Cruise was just um, he was so up for it he just he sort of looked, he looked outside and then looked back inside at all of us and just grinned <laughs> like a maniac I'm glad that those pictures of him got out on the Bush booth, because it means that people will know that he actually did it and, and there is genuine jeopardy there it's not a digital effect that's something that's missing from a lot of contemporary cinema I mean, you can watch amazing action sequences and he's not particularly thrilled by them, because you know no one was ever in any danger. You know, you can see some girl leaping through the air to attack a giant robot and just think, whatever, no matter how amazing it is, because she Hmm. never did it. She was hanging off some strings in a green room. Whereas, you know, in in the case of MI4, uh, Coast Protocol, as we call it, uh, Tom was a hair's breadth away from death, (laughs) and that's got to be more interesting.
1: Uh, so so in the book, you described that when you met with George Lucas, he gave you some advice, which was basically don't be making the same movie 30 years from now. Um, is yeah. is repeating yourself something that you worry about? And have you given any thought to where you'd like to be in 30 years?
0: It does in some respects. I mean, I constantly get asked about making a Shaun of the Dead sequel, and it drives me insane. I, 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 I get I understand why, but I, it, it, you know, a, a slight moment of, of, of critical thought would be you know, i point out the fact that it's, it's a stupid idea. It's like, why just go back and do the same thing again? I mean, that, that story ends, it has an end. And I, I think to kind of um, to go back to it would possibly retroactively hurt the original thing. I, I don't see any point in making a sequel for the sake of it. I mean, I'd love to make another Paul, if only to recreate the experience of making the first one, but I wouldn't do that without an amazing story. I think I think if... A, if deserves to be elongated fine but I'm not really interested in doing the same thing over and over again that's why I got out of television
1: okay and so final you know are there just any other recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention
0: uh, I'm just about to start shooting a movie called a fantastic fear of everything which um, is based on a Bruce Robinson short story and uh, it's about a, a, a writer who is essentially paranoid uh, and is forced to go to a laundromat and um, it's a really, really amazing script, very, very funny, uh, but also very different from anything I've done before, and um, I'm really looking forward to to doing that. And um, that's going to start shooting in the UK pretty much as soon as I get back home uh, next week. So uh, that will be the, the last thing I do before I start the next Star Trek, which we're all told should be happening sort of in the fall, which, is a, which could be uh, any time in the next sort of...
1: All right, well, Simon Pegg, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks, guys. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Simon Pegg for joining us on the show. Okay, and so today on the show, we're going to be talking about funny fantasy and science fiction. Okay, and uh, and we're going to try to limit the discussion just to, uh, as much as we can, just to, to books and short stories. You know, because um, we could just go on forever listing funny movies and TV shows. There's lots and lots of that. But, uh, you know, we figure if we talk about books and stories, there'll probably be more things that uh, people haven't already heard of. So I thought I would start out by talking about how I kind of got into funny fantasy to begin with. Uh, I might have mentioned this before, but it all goes back for me to Robert Aspirin's myth series.
2: Oh, I'm pretty sure you've never mentioned Robert Aspirin <laughs> on
1: the show. Uh, at least not for, not for a couple episodes, I don't think.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> um,
1: but this was, I think I was in second grade, and my best friend brought a book into school and uh you know that he, that he said that i should read and it was myth conceptions which was the second book in the myth series by robert aspirin and um so this is just the school was starting and so i uh you know i just sort of opened the book and looked at the at the first uh, paragraph and here i'll i'll read you what it says so the book starts of all the various unpleasant ways to be aroused from a sound sleep one of the worst is the noise of a dragon and a unicorn playing tag and so I just read that, and I was like, holy shit, this book is <laughs> going to be awesome. Uh, and so I was trying to read it, and the teacher, you know, wanted me to pay attention to the lesson. And she kept telling me to put the book away and pay attention. And, you know, and I kept, you know, I would put it away, and then I would take it out again after a couple of minutes and start reading it mm-hmm. again. And finally, she took it away from me, and or she threatened to take it away from me. Uh, so finally, I had to put it away. And I just sat there, like, all day, just like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I can't. Wait till this day is over so I can go home and read the rest of this book. And, uh, you know, it just became, you know, one of my favorite series. Uh, the books are just just hilarious. Uh, the premise is that there's a, an apprentice wizard, and, uh, you know, the, the wizard that he's apprenticed to is trying to impress him by summoning a demon. But then in the midst of the uh, summoning, an assassin busts in and kills the wizard. Uh, and, you know, the assassin and the wizard kind of kill each other. And then the apprentice is left with his demon, but then it turns out the demon is a more or less friendly demon, and, uh, you know, the, the demon is a, a wizard himself, but he's lost his powers, and so, uh, you know, they have to team up to, to stop the other evil wizard who sent, who sent the assassin
2: I'm not sure when exactly I discovered them. I, I mean, it was it wasn't first though. That like wasn't my first funny fantasy that I read. Uh, um, certainly, the first uh, for me would have been Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and/or the Piers Anthony Xanth books. Uh, I think I discovered those around the same time, and then the Myth books uh, sort of came later for me. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean, I think those are great, and I mean, I I kind of would like to go back and reread them. I'm a little afraid to though, just because like a lot of stuff that you you read when you were um, when, when you were young, it doesn't really hold up. Um, although you've re, re- you uh, you've reread them recently, right? And you uh, you still enjoyed them as an adult?
1: Yeah, I reread them. I, I yeah, I reread them just uh, I don't know two years ago or something. I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, they all they all kind of they often kind of end in a sort of anticlimactic way, which is kind of a running joke, but uh, mm-hmm. it's still sort of uh, something that uh, you just kind of have to accept. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of pun sort of pun based humor in them. And when I first started reading, reading them, you know, I didn't get any of those because I just didn't—I mm-hmm. wasn't familiar with the, you know, jokes that the things that they that they were were referencing. And so, as an adult, you go back and read them, and and you get some of the puns, and you're just like, "Oh God, that's so horrible." <laughs>
2: uh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the same thing with the Xanth books, uh-huh. uh, because those are full of puns as well. Um, although with the with the myth books, I mean, like every every title actually has some sort of pun in it. I mean, um, you know, like myth conceptions, it's like you know. You know, in, in case you can't tell the way we're saying it just on, on the air here, it's like, you know, it's the word myth, um, as in mythos um, and conceptions. And so, like, you know, if you say it together fast, it's like misconceptions, you know. um. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say. Uh, I mean, it looks like it came out in 1980. I, I don't know when I actually found it. But, it, I mean, it was it was after I had already uh, discovered uh, Xanthan and, and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, and it was because I discovered those that I ended up finding the myth books because I was looking for other things that were like that, you know, sort of.
1: Do you remember how you discovered Xanth or uh, Hitchhiker's Guide?
2: Certainly uh, my sister would have given me one or both. Um, I, I know she gave me the Xanth books because I know she read those. And I remember seeing like Castle Rugna, um, which is like one of the books in the series, like uh, in her room at some point. And, and, and I must have showed some interest in it because she eventually um, you know, gave me some of the books. Um I think the first one I read though was Veil vale, vale of the Vol, yeah. um which is one of the later books in the series. And and you know, there's a ton of them before that. But um you know, I think that was the first one I read and I went back and read a bunch of the others. Um I remember quite vividly, uh like I, you know, as as a you know, probably thirteen or fourteen year old kid uh um reading those. Um but yeah, reading reading the Xanth books when I was like, you know, thirteen or fourteen, um, you know, there there's all this stuff in there about uh like breasts and whatnot which seems sort of widely inappropriate for for stuff that's read by <laughs> by teenagers or, or younger kids but um, I mean to be fair the books are published as adult fantasy it's just that kids are who who usually reads them but like I remember in the book there's the character who's like a, she's a centaur but she's also a Pegasus so she's a she's a so she, she you know so she has the body of a centaur but she also has wings and so, but the wings are on the back of her human torso, and but she walks around naked because she's a centaur. Um, and so, but she thinks that her breasts are, are her like are like giant pectoral muscles, and so she's she's always like fanning her wings back and forth, you know, to like exercise her pectoral muscles. And and so, like people sort of goggle at her as as she's doing this because you know she's a naked big-breasted woman, <laughs> sort of jostling her breasts around as she does this, and. um there's recurrent stuff like that throughout all the Xanth books, but, I mean, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. I mean, the idea of the, of the Xanth milieu is uh, uh, basically everybody has some sort of magical ability, like, and they just, but there's just one. Like, everybody in the world has this one magical ability, and then so that's, and, and then the plots all revolve around those things. And, um, like, I know one, um, one of them, I think it's The Source of Magic, which I think is the second book, um, is about a guy who has no magical ability, or he seems to. Um, and so it's about him sort of figuring out what his actual ability is even though it initially seems like he doesn't have one um, and, and so there's some clever stuff with uh, fantasy world building like that um and, uh, and 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 the and the things are like I said they're full of puns and there's a lot of uh, other humor in there but I mean they're they're uh, they're good fun but I think like or they were at least when I was a teenager I think if I went back and read them now they'd probably be pretty hard going and I expect there would be a lot of groaning over puns to be sure. Because uh, you know, like like you were saying, I mean, when I was reading them, I I'm sure there was tons of stuff that I, that I just glossed over because I didn't get it what 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 they were talking about. But um, did you read those as well, or?
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned *Veil of the Vole*. I'm pretty sure that's the only Xanth book I ever actually read. Huh. Um, uh-huh. But like 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 you said, the the, the sort of Pegasus uh, Centaur character, you know, sticks in my mind. Uh, uh, it's it's funny actually, you know, because a lot of my friends read a lot more of the Xanth books than I did, um, but around that time. Uh, one of our assignments in school is we were supposed to write a letter to an author mm. and ask one question. And I remember, <laughs> and I remember one, of my, one of my friends wrote a letter to Piers Anthony, and his, his question was, why are you so horny? Because, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of humor, humorous fantasy is sort of like like the mixed the whole sort of mixed-up fairy tale, sort of twisted fairy tale thing. Mm. The, the, sec- the sort of second fantasy series I got into, uh, there was a lot of that in it. That was the, the Craigshaw Gardner um, serious. It actually begins with a book called *The Malady of Magics*, and it, you know, strangely enough, it has almost an identical premise to uh, another fine myth, uh, the first myth book. But in that one, there's a, a wizard's apprentice, and his master. You know, the wizard he's apprenticed to summons a demon, and uh, something goes wrong, and the wizard ends up allergic to magic, so he can't do magic anymore. So he and the uh, apprentice have to voyage to uh, to find a cure for the. You know, try, to try to cure the wizard's uh, new magic uh, allergy. And I actually, it was funny, you know, I, uh, uh, Craig Shaw Gardner was one of the instructors when I was at the Odyssey writing workshop, and he was the first author I'd ever met who, you know, who's, who, who had grown up reading his books, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and I read them as, as a little kid and stuff. And so when I, I was like so excited when I met him, I'm like, like I swear, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Like when he came in, I could almost see like, like divine light shining down mm-hmm. on him from above. But yes, yeah, so I don't know. I asked him, you know, was, you know, were you influenced at all by Robert Aspirin? And he said he had actually never read Robert Aspirin that, uh, you know, that I guess he was saying like the two of them had were both kind of riffing off of earlier stuff.
2: Uh, yeah, actually, you know, I haven't I haven't read Craig Shaw Gardner, but um, their, their con reader con um, every year, they have this uh, recurring panel where it's called the Kirk, uh, Kirk Poland Memorial Uh, competition or something like that. Um, And Kirk Poland is a fictional writer um, that uh, appeared in stories by Barry Malzberg. Um, And I guess he was like a sort of a very terrible hack writer or something like that. But anyway, so in this competition, they have like a panel – of four or five uh, participants, and Craig Shaw Gardner is one of them, which is why I mention it now. But um, or at least he he has been for several years, and he was frequently the champion of the competition. Uh, but anyway, the the whole point of the competition is that they would find um, really terrible examples of published prose, um, and they would uh, the sort of the 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 moderator would read like this section, this excerpt of the terrible prose, um, and then he would sort of stop in the middle of a scene, and then. Um. All of the participants had previously, uh, before the competition, they had all written, uh, they had written uh, stories, or they had sort of continued writing the story as if uh, that excerpt was all that existed. So, like, there's a real one, uh, there's a real way it continues. But then the participants all actually wrote uh, continuations of that scene as well. Uh, they 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 shuffle the things around so that every so that the audience doesn't know who wrote which one. And um, so they read all the things and, it, and it's usually funny because it's like, you know, they, they sort of exaggerate to uh, to the nth degree based on the ridiculousness that that the original prose started. And um, and then the audience is supposed to vote to see which one they thought was the real one. And so, like, you know, it's the job of the participants to sort of try to fool you into, you know, it's like, you know, you're supposed to write something that's ridiculous so that it will be funny, but also uh, that it's uh, sort of seems authentic enough that it might be the real one.
1: And of course, that kind of makes me think of the Eye of Argon, um, yeah. which is probably the funniest, uh, <laughs> funniest <laughs> fantasy fantasy story I've read. Yeah, this is a, a notoriously bad, sort of a Robert E. Howard Conan pastiche uh, that was submitted to a fanzine. I don't know, decades ago, and the editor, you know, just pulled it out and he's like, "This is this is hilariously bad," and you know, I don't know, sent it to some friends or something, and it got copied around, and it's a sort of. A uh, frequent game that people play at conventions is to you know you pass this around and, and read it out loud and you have to try to read for as long as you can without snickering and if you know when, once you laugh you have to pass it on to the next person mm-hmm. and it's it's really impossible to read this thing without laughing um will uh, actually i have a section here i can just <laughs> read to uh, give you a, a, a sample of uh, what it's like okay so it goes eyeing a slender female crouched alone at a nearby bench grigner advanced wishing to wholesomely occupy his time the flickering torches cast weird shafts of luminescence dancing over the half-naked harlot of his choice her stringy orchid twines of hair swaying gracefully over the lithe opaque nose as she raised a half-drained mug to her pale red lips glancing upward the alluring complexion noted the stalwart giant as he as he rapidly approached A faint glimmer sparked from the pair of deep blue ovals of the amorous female as she motioned toward Grigner, enticing him to join her. The barbarian seated himself upon a stool at the wench's side, exposing his body naked save for a loincloth brandishing a long steel broadsword, an iron-spiraled battle helmet, and a thick leather sandals to her unobstructed view. "'Thou hast need to occupy your time, barbarian,' questioned the female. Only if something worth offering is within my reach, stated Grigner, as his hands crept to embrace the tempting female who welcomed them with open willingness. From where do you come, barbarian, and by what are you called? Gasped, gasped the complying wench as Grigner smothered her lips with the blazing touch of his flaming mouth. So that kind of gives you an idea of what, of what that's like. And you can, you know, you can look that up online and, uh, you know, read the whole whole seven and a half chapters uh, or whatever mm-hmm. uh, of what exists.
2: Eye of Argon sort of transitions uh, us nicely to talk about uh, Discworld a bit because, uh, you know, Discworld by Terry Pratchett is um, basically parodying, um, your, you know, the traditional epic fantasy uh, milieu. Um, you know, it sort of set, takes place in a sort of pseudo medieval type of setting. I think the first one I actually read was called Monstrous Regiment, and it's uh, it's like about this sort of hodgepodge regiment of of Monsters, basically. I mean, like everybody was some sort of monster. So there was like sort of a Frankenstein type, and uh, and, and and all these other sort of monster types uh, in the group. Like there was like a vampire type, and all, all that kind of thing. So I mean, have uh, have you read any of the Discworld books?
1: I've actually I've only read uh, one or two. You know, I've, I've always meant to to read those. I mean, it seems like the kind of thing I would really like. But uh, you know, there's so, there's like so many of them that I've always wanted to kind of you know set a couple of months aside and, and read a substantial number of them all at the same time. And I've just never found the time. And then I'm not really sure where to start, you know, mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah, like actually,
2: it, sorry. Uh, actually, if you go to Wikipedia, there there's like, there's some advice on, on the reading order for Discworld, and, and actually monstrous regiment, the one that I started with uh, by accident actually is a really good one to start with. Cause it, it sort of, it basically stands alone, but, uh, but it, but it does sort of really immerse you into the world and you can go back and read any of the other ones. And, and, you know, like, you know, not having read any the other ones doesn't matter for that one. So,
1: because, you know, anytime I ask someone where where should I start, they're always like, oh, you can read any of
2: them in order, in any order, it doesn't matter. And
1: I'm kind of like, that doesn't help me, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I need someone you know, to tell I, me,
1: read this one. Yeah.
2: Right. You know, I would actually, I would really suggest uh, starting with Master's Regiment. I mean, because I think it's a really good one. And actually, it's really, really worth pointing out um, if you liked listening to audiobooks, which maybe you can use, uh, maybe you can sign up for a free trial at audible.com, our sponsor. And you can get one of these Discworld audiobooks because the audiobooks are amazing. Um, like, all the, all the more recent ones are read by Stephen Briggs, who actually has, like, uh, collaborated with Terry Pratchett to, to do, like, some books about the world of Discworld and whatnot. But, I mean, yeah, he's an amazing narrator. I mean, he just really uh, gets all of the comic timing just right. Um, and actually, now that I think of it, I'm not sure I've ever actually read a Discworld book. I may have actually listened to every one of them that I've listened, that I've read. But anyway, I mean, um, I I think it's hard to go wrong with uh, Discworld on audio. And I think that's generally true of most um, humorous works. Uh, Like, you know, uh, because there's so much that can be left to the interpretation on how to deliver a line. I think when you have someone doing it for you who has actual good comic timing and and understands humor and everything like that really adds something to that adds something to the narrative that you're not necessarily going to get when you just read it um, in print.
1: I mean, the, the thing that people have said about Discworld that I think is really interesting is that, um, you know, it's kind of a problem for writers is that, you know, series tend to sell better than standalone books. And so publishers, you know, there's, there's just sort of this pressure on authors to, to turn out mm-hmm. book after book in the same series. And so, I mean, it's better for sales if you write in a series, but then it gets kind of boring writing the same characters in the same world over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And Terry Pratchett seems to have found kind of the ideal solution to that in Discworld, where, you know, every book set in Discworld is part of the Discworld series, but then Discworld is so uh, uh, variable that, you know, you can kind of make up any story you want and just set it somewhere in Discworld and, you know, have different characters and all sorts of different things going on. And so you sort of get the best of both worlds from an author's point of view because you can kind of write pretty much anything you want as long as it's – set somewhere in Discworld and and it still uh, fits into that series.
2: Yeah, no, know. It's, it's quite clever. And, and actually, one of the one of the interesting things is that, you know, he also started writing um, young adult novels set in this world as well. So not only is he writing everything that takes place in the same world and so he has that advantage, but now he's also like, you know, hooking the young kids. And then so when they uh, sort of when they get a little older and they graduate to reading stuff in the adult section or whatever they do, um, you know, uh, they have a whole uh, wealth of, of novels that they, they can read there, too. And actually, the the young adult ones are actually quite good too. Is uh, I mean, not that that should be a surprise, but I mean, you know, they're I, I think they're all you know very readable by adults as well. Like um, the We Free Men is the first one I read. I think that's the, actually the first the first young adult Discworld book, and that's actually a very good one to start with as well. Uh, it's the first uh, featuring this certain character, um, Tiffany Aching. It's a good introduction to Discworld, I think, because specifically, um, they were expecting. That most people reading it would be reading it for the re, would be encountering Disworld for the first time, since there had never been a, a Disworld book published as YA before.
1: I mean, we talked about Robert Asprin's Myth series. He had this other series called um, started starting out. It's a science fiction series starting out with Fools Company, and it seems like you know humorous science fiction is even more rare than humorous fantasy. The thing that's always struck me about this book is, uh, you know, you open the front cover, and it describes the book this way. It says. There are a handful of military rejects, led by the biggest fool of them all, Captain Willard Fool. Threatened by an alien enemy, Earth's military has decided to send Fool and his misfit soldiers to a distant planet, where they can't get into any trouble. But now the aliens have chosen a new target of war. Guess who? But then you read the book, and it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. (laughs) Um... (laughs) You know, I mean, there well, there is you know there is a, this Captain Fool, and he uh, he kind of screws up at the beginning, and they want to court martial him, but his dad is a big um, uh, weapons contractor, and so they instead they they punish him by uh, assigning him to lead this unit, uh, you know, entirely composed of people who kicked out of other units because they don't want them because they're uh, you know just misfits and stuff, and then at the end. Uh, they have to do a training exercise against this elite unit and, and somehow prevail. And there's no, there's no aliens invading or anything like that in the entire book. Often people who write the cover copy for books don't actually read them, but that's always just struck me as the, the most egregious example I've ever seen where I just really wonder what happens with that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, it could be an example where, like, they may have been working on a really short timeline or something, and so um, they wrote the cover copy based on, like, the proposal or something, and then, um, you know, but then the book actually turned out to be something else, and they just never, you know, like, they never bothered to, uh, I mean, they never bothered to fix the cover copy because, like, someone had already done it or something.
1: And so then another sort of funny funny science fiction book I've read uh, is, is called Bill of the Galactic Hero by Harry Harrison. Uh this this is very broad, <laughs> sort of parody of kind of uh uh sort of military SF uh, uh you know, space opera kind of stuff. But uh it's about this this guy and uh oh boy, I read this a long time ago, but it it's about a guy and he uh joins the army. But the, the parts that really stick stick out in in my mind about this is that there was uh you know, there's there's sort of the uh, the capital planet, which is completely covered by a city. You know, like Trantor from um, Foundation, or uh, uh, you know, um, Coruscant, Coruscant in the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so it talks about that kind of planet and, and the issue is, well. Like, if uh, if the whole planet is covered with a city, where do you dump your trash, right? Mm-hmm. And so in so there so in this book that that the planet has that problem, and so the solution they found is to <laughs> just uh, take all the trash to the to the nearest post office and just you know send it out to any address you know they can think of, and so they're just using the post office to mail all their trash off to other planets. Hmm. And uh, I always thought that was pretty funny, and it does kind of make you wonder, like, yeah, about some of the logistics of a you know a city that covers the whole planet. Um,
2: well, in, in Star Wars, apparently they put all their trash onto the Death Star, you know, and they they throw people in the pit with it, and they you know put monsters in there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's another <laughs> that's another solution.
2: And then also,
1: uh, I, I, another thing that's funny about this book is, you know, I, I just kind of glanced at the cover, you know, when I got it. And I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. And then I started reading the book. And at one point, uh, the hero, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, the hero, their, their unit gets sent into some, you know, impossible situation. And most of them get wiped out. And the, the main character wakes up and finds that uh, one of his arms has been blown off. And they've uh, surgically attached one of his teammates' arms to his body. Except it's, uh, they, they put the wrong arm on, so he now has two right hand. you know, he has, like, two right arms. Uh, and so then I went back and looked at the cover, and, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he does have two right arms on the cover. Uh, and also, the, like, the skin tone doesn't match, you know. And it's, it's just really, <laughs> it was just really weird where, you know, you just look at the, just glance at the cover and, you know, not notice that the guy has somebody else's arm stuck onto him. And then mm-hmm. you read the book and go back and look at it, and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I didn't notice that.
2: Yeah, you know, other than uh, other than Hitchhiker's Guide, I can't actually really think of other um, humorous SF that I've actually read. I mean, I, I've certainly read some in short fiction. Um, although, even then, I, I think uh, it, it does tend writers do tend to focus to do humorous stuff much more in fantasy than in science fiction. You know, like I mean, because I used to work at the magazine in fantasy and science fiction, and um, the guidelines always said that you know we never get enough humor. And so, you know, uh, that was something that uh, the editor was always looking for and, uh, you know, something that FNSF published a fair amount of. But, yeah, I mean, uh, most of what I can think of has been um, was uh, was fantasy rather than uh, science fiction.
1: How like what percentage would you say of, uh, you know, of, of the manuscripts that come in are even attempting to be sort of laugh out loud funny? I mean, is it like there are a lot of them and they're just not that funny or like not that many people are even trying?
2: Um, I think it's pretty small, but um, I think uh, a large percentage of the people that are trying actually aren't funny is the problem. Um, Actually, I I should point out that I did recently publish a humorous story in Lightspeed. um, Actually, in in the current June issue, Um, there's a story by Grady Hendrix um, called uh, Transcript of Interaction Between Astronaut Mike Scudderman and the OnStar Hands-Free AI Crash Advisor. Um, It's basically about um, a guy who crash lands um, on a planet in a spaceship and um, it has a a crash advisor uh, AI that uh, is offering not very useful advice.
1: I mean, it seems like, you know, like it's, it's sort of well established that humor, the comedy movies tend not to win like the Oscar for best picture or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it certainly seems like humor tends not to win awards in short stories and stuff as well. I mean, do you, do you think that plays any role when editors sort of passing on humor stories where they're like, you know, this is kind of funny, but it's not going to win any awards.
2: Uh, I don't think that factors into it, just because you know not every story you buy is going to have any shot at an award, and and, and I mean you even know that really, like where or at least you have a strong feeling that like well, well this isn't an award contender, but I mean it's a good story and I like it, you know, and um and I think most of my readers will like it. But
1: I mean, actually, I, I might not have this entirely straight, but I I think I heard John Scalzi actually say that you know that his novel um like old man's war uh, is actually, there's a lot of humor in it, mm-hmm. but that I, I guess there's just a perception that like a book marketed as funny. Science fiction won't sell well. And mm-hmm. so even a book that has a lot of humor in it, they'll just sort of market it with a sort of serious looking cover and, a uh, you know, sort of make it look like military science fiction and, and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, was a huge bestseller and, and didn't have that problem, but um, I don't know that there's any other books um you know that duplicated that success.
1: Although for I mean, John
2: Scalzi, I mean, it's an interesting case. I mean, because his uh, one of his other novels, um, not in the Old Man's War universe, uh, uh, *The Android's Dream*. Um, I mean, that one sort of has a, a it doesn't have an explicitly humorous looking cover, but I mean, at least it's a sort of a lighthearted looking cover. Um, and that and that novel, I mean, which is not which again is not entirely humorous, but I mean, it's definitely a lot of humor in the book. Um, I mean, it begins with like basically a chapter long fart joke. Yeah, but that's interesting though. I mean, because like you know certainly. Humorous fantasy doesn't have that problem. I mean, like, you know, there's Christopher Moore. Um, have you ever read him? Oh uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Christopher Moore, I mean, he's written a lot of, uh, you know, best-selling uh, novels. And, I mean, he's marketed it in the mainstream. Um, I mean, his novels are clearly fantasy. I mean, they all have demons in them or, or death or, you know, whatnot. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so, I mean, he doesn't have that problem, clearly. But, I mean, it's kind of curious to see, like, if he wrote a science fiction novel instead of a fantasy one, um uh, you know, still published as mainstream since, since, you know, that's where his books all um are shelved. Um, it'd be curious to see if, uh you know, if there's any sort of dip in, uh, dip in his sales or if it, it's just sort of a, uh, a misapprehension um of publishers that, that they won't sell. I
1: actually, you know, I listened to an interview with Christopher Moore one time and he said something that really struck me, but he said that his publisher, you know, felt like his sales would be, would be better if he had a book coming out regularly every six months. And, mm-hmm. uh, that he, he wrote this book called Lamb, which is uh, it's sort of like a, a, a humorous take on uh, the Gospels. And uh, he felt like, you know, he had to do like more research and put more thought into that one. And so he actually sort of worked it out where he would write one book in three months and then have nine months to do that one, you know, and still keep up the sort of two a year schedule. But uh, they actually, they published that book in kind of uh, like a leather binding and, you know, sort of a gold leaf type, uh, print and stuff. So it kind of looks like a Bible.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: and I guess that's a pretty, it's done really well. It's a really popular sort of gift that people will get each you know, give, give it at Christmas or something. I don't know. Um, I mean, there's another book I wanted to mention, uh, which is really funny. It's not a, it's not fiction. Uh, but this is, uh, it's by Diana Wynne-Jones and it's called the tough guide to Fantasyland. land. This is a book that, uh, you know, all fantasy writers are pretty much required to read. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's written as if it's a guidebook, but it's sort of like, it's like a guidebook to a cliche fantasy world. The idea, the idea is that a lot of fantasy is so predictable that you, you know, you already know what to expect going into it and you can sort of write a guidebook of, you know, exactly what's going to happen. And uh, it's, it's, it's actually really painful. It's a really painful experience. It's sort of funny and painful for a fantasy writer to read this book, because there's so many things where you're like, oh, I've done that, or, you know, I could see myself doing that. And let me see if I can find uh, an example. I to remember the bandits thing was pretty good. Uh, Where's that? Uh, So it says, uh, bandits roam the hillier parts of the country in large gangs that seem fairly well organized. They are easily able to plant a spy, which is also an entry, or a false guard in any caravan, see also caravan guard, to lead it into a prepared ambush. Expect to be attacked by bandits early in the tour. They will leave you for dead, possibly taking one of your companions prisoner before they do. So it's just you know, it's like a whole book of stuff like that where you know.
2: Uh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of. Uh, uh, it kind of reminds me of the series of novels by Jasper Ford, uh, start starting with the Air Affair. There's a there's a character named Thursday Next, and she's sort of like a literary detective. Um, in the world in the world of the novel, like, basically, you can enter into a book and, like, uh, by entering the book, you can, like, interact with the characters in the book and whatnot. And so there's, like, certain books that are, like, the um, – um, like, 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 sort of the main copy of the book. And so somebody, somebody is, like, sort of going in there and, like, editing or changing the actual real copy of the book. So that's changing it for everyone. Um, and so uh, it's, it's Thursday next job uh, to figure out, like, who's doing that and put a stop to it. And so, anyway, um, in one of the later books, it's called the Well of Lost Plots, and uh, so the Well of Lost Plots is actually like a—it's uh, basically like uh, the slush pile come to life. Uh, and the slush pile, for people who don't know, is it's like all the unsolicited manuscripts that you know get submitted to editors. And so, basically, uh, there, there's like a world. There's like a fantasy world where, like the like the sort of the most generic fantasy world, which is what reminded me of it um, from the from the Dan and Jones book. But it's like you know it has all the typical things in there, and, and uh, there's like a you know sort of Conan the Barbarian type of character wandering around, and, and all these sort of fantasy creatures and whatnot. Um, and you know there's an, and there's a different part of the Well of Lost Plots where uh, where Thursday next sort of wanders into this bar that's sort of like the most isolated Cantina, where you know there's like it's like this retro type of scum, scum and villainy, and and like you know uh, she runs into Gully Foil from the Stars My Destination in there just sort of hanging around, and and, and there's all kind of cool stuff like that.
1: I mean, you know, when I was saying when I met, uh, Craig Shaw Gardner, uh, at the Odyssey writing workshop, he said something that, that really struck me is he was saying, uh, that, uh, I guess, you know, at that point, and, and maybe since then there had been sort of a lull in funny fantasy. And he said, you know, fantasy, funny fantasy, it's, uh, it's going to make a comeback. Uh, you know, if you have any ideas for a funny fantasy novel, now's the time. Cause it's, you know, it's on the upswing. Uh, I don't know if that ever happened or not. Actually, it was kind of funny, you know, uh. Uh, Donald Moss, who's a literary agent, was the next guest. He came like the next week or whatever. And we said, what do you think about that? Is funny fantasy? Is that on the upswing? He's like, I don't know about that, (laughs) Um, but uh, that was really, it had never really occurred to me before that. You know, I was pretty young at the time that something like funny fantasy is something that would rise and fall and, you know, that you could write a really good funny fantasy novel and then it would just not sell because people are like, oh, funny fantasy is not, you know, that's not hot right now or whatever. You know, because I'd just grown up with funny fantasy. I just, you know, it had always been around as far as I was concerned. It would always be around. And mm-hmm. uh, But I read actually that sort of what created that whole, you know, created the fertile ground for that whole thing was that, you know, the Lord of the Rings had been really popular. And then National Lampoon wrote this book called Board of the Rings, which was, you know, sort of a parody of Lord of the Rings. And that that did really became like a best-selling book. And so then people were like, oh, we need more stuff like Board of the Rings. And, and so there was, you know... Mm-hmm. You know, there was sort of a whole sort of a whole gold rush kind of thing for, you know, stuff that would make fun of sort of sword and sorcery epic fantasy conventions. And, and so I was sort of thinking about that, and it just sort of occurred to me that that one of the reasons you might not see a lot of humor uh, in short fiction is because like the a lot of the, 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 the sort of subject matter. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, like to a lot of humor is sort of like parodying is sort of parodying familiar conventions. And that almost all humor I can think of, like in fantasy and science fiction, is a parody of either, like, you know, Lord of the Rings-style epic fantasy, sword and sorcery, or fairy tales, or, um... So the sort of golden age consensus future of jetpacks and flying cars and, you know, hyperspace ships jumping around the galaxy and, you know, aliens that speak English and live alongside the humans and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of like, um, what, uh... Hitchhiker's Guide makes fun of and, um, you know, Futurama, stuff like that. And also zombies, you know, that's like, like Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know, that zombies are sort of pop, but, but that you need this, this sort of, you need something popular enough that a large enough audience is going to get the joke if you make fun of it, you know, that that has to exist, exist first and kind of the stuff that's popular right now, um, in short fiction is kind of stuff like, you know, steampunk and new weird and, uh, um, sort of you know, post-human singularity type science fiction, and stuff that like I just don't think a mass audience is familiar enough with the ideas that enough people would get the joke if you were to make fun of it that you know a story like kind of like a a a board of the ring style parody of the singular you know the technological singularity you know that's a pretty narrow uh, audience that you're aiming that at you know
2: yeah no that's a fair point I mean um I, I would have a really hard time even coming up with something that That was anything like for science fiction, for instance, like that, that was anything beyond like sort of a typical alien um, abduction type of uh, scenario or, or like, you know, sort of a Star Wars type of scenario. It's like, there's very little that's out there that it really is going to be sort of ingrained in the public consciousness that you can just sort of make fun of um, and assume that everyone will know what you're talking about.
1: And like, even Um, like, even like stuff that's coming out right now is, is making fun of the science fiction future. Mm from 50 years ago you know it's not yeah. making fun of the science fiction future that we project from right now
2: right right yeah good point
1: um i wanted to mention you know mike resnick writes a lot of sort of funny short stories and, and novels um and uh, esther friesner uh, i read one of hers called uh, split Heiress, that was pretty funny she also edits a series of uh anthologies uh starting with chicks and Chainmail," chicks and Chainmail, which kind of you know makes fun of uh the uh, tendency of heroines in epic fantasy to be underdressed uh, and wear sort of chainmail bikinis and stuff like that. And then just, I haven't read either of these guys, but, uh, they seem like the kind of thing I might enjoy. I'm definitely planning to check them out at some point, but, uh, Jim C. Hines wrote a book called, uh, Goblin Quest. And I think there's some sequels to that. That's, it seems, you know, sort of like a you know, funny fantasy, Terry Pratchett, Robert Asprin kind of thing. And, uh, a. Lee Martinez wrote a book called Gil's All Fright Diner, and he's written a bunch of other sort of books uh, you know, involving witches and ogres and stuff like that uh, that uh, I think have gotten pretty good reviews.
2: Uh, and, you know, obviously we couldn't mention everything that we could think of. Like, we didn't talk about Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, which is a, a classic of, of of humorous fantasy. Um, and there's other sort of more contemporary examples, like, we could have talked about. Like, I'm a big fan of Johannes Cabal the Necromancer by Jonathan L. Howard. Um, actually, I published two of his stories set in, uh, about that character, Johannes Cabal. There's one in my anthology, Way of the Wizard, and there's one in Fantasy Magazine um, in the April issue, which you can actually just go read for free. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there's there's we could we could go on and on, obviously, and, and talking about all of our favorite examples. But uh, we have to limit the episode somewhat. And, and so anyway, um, if there's anyone that we didn't mention that uh, we should have, uh, feel free to let us know in the comments uh, or just let us know what your favorite um, your, your favorite example of funny fantasy or science fiction is. And, and just tell us why,
1: um, you know, and, and so as always, we're sponsored by Audible.com. So if you, uh, you know, John mentioned this earlier, but if you want to help us out. You could uh, go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on any of the ads for Audible and it'll take you to a page where you can sign up for a free trial subscription and get a free audiobook. Um, you might get some of the Terry Pratchett books that John mentioned and also Simon Pegg's memoir that we talked about today, Nerd Do Well, is uh, available as an audiobook. It's uh, read by Simon Pegg himself. So uh, if you want to check any of those out and uh, you know, do it by going to geeksguideshow.com, uh, that would help us out a lot.
2: All right, well, that was our episode. Thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9.
0: For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.